0: We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that all of it is useful for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, and for training us in how to live right, so that the servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work. So let's open the Bible and let's look at it together. Hey, everyone. We're recording this message from our Kingston building. Um, One of the great things about this building is we're right in the center of Kingston town. It means you might hear some of the hustle and bustle of people going around. You might even hear the the busker playing in the main street as we're recording, but it's because we're here in Kingston. And do you know, since the last time we worshiped in Kingston, it's been quite a while now since the last time we worshiped, I've actually got some news. My wife has had our first baby. Our lovely lady Penelope was born on the 20th of September. She's about a month old now. And uh, so I'm now a veteran father and I can now share some of my wisdoms with you. Write this down. Babies are a lot of work. People, people don't seem to know that. They, I, this might be a shock to you. Um, but it's, I'm not just talking about... After they're born. Like we know, we knew we were going to be sleep deprived. We knew she was going to be needy and she was going to change our lives. But we're talking about beforehand the prep work that goes into having a baby. Let me give you an example. Uh, Over summer, Emma went up to Manchester to visit her family, this last kind of trip before the baby was born. And I thought it'd be a nice way to surprise her to paint the room that's going to be our nursery. It was a fairly awful green color, and I thought, I know, I'll paint it. I'll paint it baby pink. I knew Emma would want baby pink, because Emma wants everything baby pink. So I thought this would be a lovely way to surprise her. It'll be great. So uh, I worked into the evenings, into the nights, because I was still working during the day to get this painting done, moved all the furniture, got everything sorted. And when she came back, I was so excited. I was so excited to see how she'd respond. And I grabbed her by the hand and took her into the room, and nothing. Out, seconds stretched into hours as she looked around and just didn't notice. After a while, she said, "Oh, you've put the rug down." Oh, yeah, that's that's okay, that's nice. Now, <laughs> in her defence, after a little while later, she got it and she was thrilled. But and uh, but she just took it, it took it ages to notice this massive thing. And to be fair to her, we've all been there, right? We've all done this thing where we. We're so used to what something looks like that we don't notice when it changes. How, how many of you have missed when your significant other has a haircut, for example? What happens is there's science behind this. Our brain filters information that it's expecting, so we don't notice changes on something we're really familiar with. And what happens is you end up missing obvious things, like a significant other's haircut, or like that your husband spent days trying to work to surprise you, and you don't even... It's okay. It's okay. My point is that we can do exactly the same thing with Scripture. There are passages in the Bible, there are stories of Scripture that we just have such clear expectations of what they are, we're so familiar with them, that we just kind of mentally skim over them. The story of Cain and Abel is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. How many of you mentally tuned out a little bit when that Scripture was being read? Because you just know the passage so well. Or you know the story, at least. If you're not careful, you can read this passage and you can just think that the point is that killing people is bad. Like it's one of Aesop's more straightforward and blunt fables. There is so much more to this story than that. Don't get me wrong, killing people is bad, okay? But there's more to that, especially family members, okay? I cannot emphasize that enough. Do not kill your family members. But the point is there's more to the story than that. Let me show you what I mean. Verses verses 2 to 5 say this. Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain on his offering, he did not look with favor. Let me ask you this question. Why did God not look with favor on Cain's offering? You can look through the text. It's not there. There's no answer in the passage. Cain gives an offering from his job. Abel gives an offering from his job. They seem to be roughly the same. Well, Here's a little Bible study tip for you. The best book to interpret the Old Testament is the New Testament. So if when we don't know the answer to something like this, we can often look to the New Testament and that can help us. Um, Let me give you this example from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. Now, the word that it uses for offering can also be translated as sacrifice. Indeed, it usually is translated as sacrifice. It refers to the sacrifice of animals at the temple. It's also used in Hebrews 10 to refer to the sacrifice of Jesus. The point is, this word is usually used to describe sacrifices that atone for sins. Why is Abel's offering better? because, to quote Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, Abel's offering is pleasing to God because it recognises the cost of sin. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, we get a hint of it. When Adam and Eve try to hide their nakedness, they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. But God shows them that this is not enough, and he kills an animal and uses its hide to cover their shame. Plants aren't good enough to cover for human sin, which is what Abel gets and Cain doesn't. Abel's sacrifice recognizes that the payment for sin requires blood. Cain doesn't get this. He's, he's paying respects to God. He, he is trying to be respectful and he's still making an offering, but it's not a sin offering. It's not an offering of repentance. It helps if we understand what God says in Psalm 50, when he says, I bring no charges against you concerning sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields, mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Or to put it another way, I have no issue with your sacrifices, but I don't need them. I am the God that created everything. I don't get hungry. And if I did, I wouldn't need you to feed me. I could come from any, I could uh, get anything from my creation. What matters is the heart behind your sacrifices. We get a sense of Cain's heart in this sacrifice, in his sacrifice in verse 7, when God says to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It's not much of a leap to suggest that Cain has thus far not done what is right. His choice of bloodless sacrifice betrays his heart and his understanding of sin. Abel, on the other hand, repents properly. He sacrifices his firstborn lamb. He recognizes that his sin has to be paid for in blood. Now, we're not informed of any specific sin that Abel's responsible for, but he is tainted, as we all are, by the sins of his father Adam. And so he sacrifices an animal to atone for that. And it works. We know it works because the passage says that God looks with favour on Abel. Don't miss how significant this is. Don't forget what's just happened. This is the first time since the fall of man that God has looked with favour on anyone. Abel's choice to sacrifice with blood is what makes that happen. And that's what God's people will go on doing for thousands of years, sacrificing animals and using their blood to pay for the sins of man. These sacrifices are good, but they're not perfect. If they were perfect, Hebrews tells us that they wouldn't need to be repeated. They're not perfect, so more sacrifices are required. God hands down to Moses some very specific laws concerning what animals to use, what condition they need to be in, etc., and the cycle continues of man sinning and sacrifices atoning. The cycle continues until just under 2,000 years ago when God's Son comes and solves the problem. You see, Jesus Christ comes and he gives himself as the perfect sacrifice, the one that will never need to be repeated, that will cover everyone that comes to him. And when you know Jesus, you can see him in this passage. Abel sacrifices a lamb, Jesus is the lamb of God. Not only that, but Abel sacrifices his firstborn lamb. Jesus is described as the firstborn of all creation. The sacrifice of the firstborn lamb pays the debt of sin for Abel, giving him God's favour, just as the sacrifice of the firstborn of creation pays the debt of sin for all of us. Abel's sacrifice foreshadows the great saviour of mankind. The message is called The Bodyguard, and it's actually a really good analogy for what happens. All of us, every single human, is staring down the barrel of a gun called death. The bullet has already been fired. It feels like it's moving in slow motion, but there's no avoiding it. In fact, some of us inexplicably move towards it. We're doomed, and it's clear to everyone that we're doomed. But then the one person, the one person in human history who is not in the path of that bullet stands in the way of it for us. Jesus Christ, the God man, takes the hit. He puts himself between us and death. And in doing so, he disarms our attacker and he removes us from danger forever. No one else would have done that. No one else could that can we just can we just pause there for a minute there's there's a lot more I want to say about this passage and we'll, we'll come back but I just want us to pause so that we can reflect on that that Jesus takes the bullet for each and every one of us for me and for you every day that we live for the rest of eternity is paid for by the blood of the Lamb of God Let me pray and we'll worship him. Jesus, thank you that you saved us from the penalty of our sin. Thank you that your plan was in motion as soon as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and that we can see this in the story of Cain and Abel. Lord, we repent of our sins and we ask that you cover us in the blood of Jesus that saves us. We pray that you reveal more and more of this great mystery that is your gospel as we worship you. Amen. Um, Emma and I are fascinated by personality profiles. She takes them a little bit more seriously than I do, but your Myers-Briggs, your Strengths Finders, your Enneagrams, that kind of stuff, we're, we find them really interesting. You can't get too wrapped up in them, but you basically if you've not come across them, you get given, Myers-Briggs for example, you get given these, these letters that tell you how you interact with the world. They tell you your personality. You'll get things like ENFP, ISTJ, that kind of stuff. It's not unusual in our household for me to do something stupid and for Emma to just say, you're such a pee, which is less rude than it sounds like it is. It's referring to how you interact with the world. Then there's the ones you get on social media, you know, the, the what species of dog are you, what vegetable do you most resemble, what that kind of stuff. They don't tell you anything, but they're they're a bit of fun. And I want to take you through a, per, a brief personality test today—a far more important personality test. This one's a matter of life and death. It's called: Are you a Cain or are you an Abel? Question one. There's three questions. We'll go. Through. They should be fairly straightforward. Question one: God helps those who help themselves. Is that A true or B false? Question two, when it appears that God has blessed someone more than you, do you A, get jealous, or B, rejoice for them? Be honest, no one else is going to find out your answers. Question three, when you know you've done something wrong before God, do you A, try and rationalise it, or B, ask for forgiveness? Take a moment to tabulate your scores. If you scored more A's than B's, I'm sorry to tell you, you're a Cain. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that you're like a killer waiting to happen. But Cain is an extreme example of a really common sin response. It's the sin of pride and more specifically the sin of self-reliance. You see, Cain doesn't give a repentance offering because he thinks his own work should be enough. He then gets offended when it isn't. He's so wrapped up in his outrage that he won't even listen to God himself trying to talk him out of killing his brother. And worse, what we see from Cain afterwards, when he's directly confronted by God, is not a man who recognizes that he's done anything wrong. He, he, he argues with God that he's not responsible for his brother, and then he complains that his punishment, again, for murdering his brother is too severe. That's the complaint of a man who is downplaying his sin. That's the complaint of a man who doesn't accept the judgment of God. You might feel that Cain is almost like a a pantomime villain, like completely divorced from reality, but some of his characteristics are so common in many of us today. Those times where you've tried to twist God's arm with your own actions just like Cain. There's times you got annoyed that someone's gifts were recognised above yours, just like Cain. There's times where you've tried to, to, to hide or, or, or downplay your sin, just like Cain. Living in the West in the 21st century, we are, we are encouraged to be independent and to be self-reliant. We are told to trust in our own abilities and trust in our own gifts. We're told that they are enough. And so when we find out that they're not, because they're not, we get stressed, or we get outraged, or we get downcast. Just like Cain. We basically put ourselves on the throne of our lives. We decide that we're the most important element of our joy and of our peace. Then when we fail, we lash out. We either lash out at ourselves or we lash out at others. Let me let you in on a secret. We were never meant to be on the throne of our own lives. We were always meant to rely on God and to trust in him to be our joy and our peace. Sometimes we live our lives as if we're in a boat rowing and rowing, rowing hard to our great destination. We'd get there a lot faster if we just put up the sail and let the wind of God take us. We we give up in the pride of Cain and we can trust in God to be our strength. What happens to Cain? He's cast out. It's an act of God's mercy that he doesn't just strike him down then and there, but it's also an illustration for all the Cains of the world. Cain is cast out and is no longer in relationship with God. He went out from the Lord's presence. He is a restless wanderer for the rest of his life. He's mentioned a couple of times later in the Bible, but exclusively as examples of evil. And that's it. He, as far as we can tell from Scripture, Cain does not inherit eternal life. Cain is literally discipled by God through conversation. His parents would have been able to tell him stories of the garden and of walking with God in the Garden of Eden, and he throws it all away. And this choice impacts his children and their children and their children. Don't be like Cain. If Cain had just realized that he couldn't rely on his own abilities, if he'd just let go of his own jealousy at his brother, if he'd accepted his sin and repented, the world would have been radically different. Don't be like Cain. Don't give in to the sin crouching at your door. You will be tempted. You may well be being tempted right now to to trust in yourself above trusting in Jesus, to, to put yourself on the throne, to forgive your own sins. It will only lead to restless wandering. do not, do not, do not be like Cain. Instead, just turn away from your sin. And and wash yourself in the blood of Jesus. Instead, recognize that you are not self-reliant. You are reliant on God. Instead, be like Abel. Abel's faith means that he was looked upon by the Lord with favor. Be like Abel, who is held up as a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11. Be like Abel. He was killed, yes, but his suffering was light in comparison with his eternal reward. If you're more like Cain than you are like Abel, it's time to do something about it. The good news is it's easy to do something about it. You just need to call on God in prayer. It doesn't matter whether you've lived a a good life or not. It doesn't matter whether you've ever called yourself a Christian or not. It doesn't matter whether you've ever prayed before or not. You can give up the stress of having to rely on yourself and you can say to God, I want to rely on you. Let me show you how. Just hold your hands out and say, Lord, I have been reliant on myself for too long. I have depended on myself for too long. Father, please let me put my burdens on you. Father, I make you the Lord of my life. And I ask that I be washed in the blood of your son, Jesus. Amen.